We're starting a new series, New Year's, why not? And it's called Good Question. And the idea behind Good Question is this. In 20 years of ministry, I have met people that have questions about their faith. I know that's nutty because it just should be the Bible says it and that settles it, right? Yeah, not for a lot of people. I know that's a fancy, cool sounding little phrase, but for a lot of people, it's not that simple. That there are questions and that there are doubts that come up with mature believers in Jesus Christ. And so if you're new here, one of the things that I try to emphasize is this, this area of doubt. And the reason why I try to emphasize it is because of my own personal journey in church and how I was treated when I came with my doubts. So if you're new, I'm gonna give you a very brief testimony of my life and try to explain why we're doing this series. If you've been here for any time, you know this, it's okay. You can be a little patient. I'll be as quick as possible. So my story, raised in the church. I think I was born in the nursery and my first word was Jesus, right? That's the way it started for me. If the church was open, my mom had us in that church. Dad disappeared, my mom was, church is it. Get, get my kids in church. So we lived a block from the church and the private Christian school I went to was also in that church. So it was a very, very small box for me growing up. Well, in the seventh grade, because of some stuff that happened in that church, it started to disintegrate, the school was shut down. And so then I go into public school from a very small box to public school. And public school did not teach what I had been taught in the private Christian school. And so it was like mind blowing for me and I had to make a massive adjustment. And with that adjustment, I just drifted away from faith. Sophomore summer, after my sophomore summer at Oregon State University, I rededicated my life to Jesus and I was on fire. Like as on fire as you can get. In church, whenever it was open, Bible studies, campus crusade for Christ, I was just on fire for Jesus. I was trying to get everybody saved. Like around that time, I had this shirt. So if you're my age, Visa had this commercial and the commercial was this. G uh, Visa, it's everywhere you wanna be. Remember that? I had a shirt that Jesus was written like Visa and underneath it, it said, he's everywhere you wanna be, right? And so I was that guy. Well, spring term, junior year, I'm trying to fill out, you know, what classes am I gonna take? And I needed a philosophy class to kind of round out my engineering stuff. So I'm looking down and I see philosophy 390. And it just said Jesus seminar. I went, no way. I can get credit for learning about Jesus? Give me a seminar on Jesus. This is awesome. So I signed up and I show up. I bring my Bible to class. Like, boom, I've got my Bible on my desk. Let's learn about Jesus. Because obviously you're gonna learn about Jesus from the Bible, right? Not so much. So the professor, his name was Marcus Borg. And he's a big time dude. Um, you can Google him. And so Marcus Borg begins by saying, hey, I'm a Christian just like you guys are. I'm like, yeah, Christians, woohoo, right? And then by about the second week, after you couldn't withdraw anymore without giving a, getting a W on your form, he drops his first of many F-bombs. I'm like, wow, I know Christians may say that, but usually it's because they hit their thumb with a hammer. 
This guy's just dropping them in class. Hmm, different kind of Christian. Turns out, Marcus Borg was part of these so-called scholars that would get together in the 90s and they were called the Jesus Seminar and there was about 100 of them, it grew to 106 and they would debate the words of Jesus. At the end of the debate, whatever it would be, one day or two days, they would vote on whether they believed the words in the Bible attributed to Jesus were actually spoken by Jesus. So if they believed he said them, they'd put in a red marble. If they thought he probably said them, a pink marble. If they doubted he said them, gray marble. And if there's no way he said them, it was a black marble, right? So he's part of this crew. And you can find him, he was on CNN and Time Magazine. He's a big role, I had no idea, right? I'm just in this class, I thought, to learn about Jesus, but not so much. So here's how class would go. He would say something. And for a while, it was me and two other people. Then it was me and one other person. And then it was just me. So he would say something. And I knew the Bible really well. I was in church for a long time, really studying the Bible this time. He would say something. I'd be like, oh, oh, oh professor, um, in John chapter six, it says this. And this is what he'd do to me. <clears throat> well, Matthew, um, we know that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Do you know Aramaic, Matthew? I'd say, oh yeah, I know Aramaic. He's on my intramural basketball team. I love the dude. <laughs> what next, man? Come on, bring it, right? So, and we know <clears throat> the words that Jesus spoke there <clears throat> in Aramaic didn't exist until the second century. So <clears throat> we know that there's no way that <clears throat> Jesus would have said those words. And so we just go back and forth. It was just back and forth, back and forth. It's the only class at that point in my career that I got a C on. Every single one of my, my papers, he'd be like, you're not listening to me in class. I'm like, can't you tell I'm not listening to you in class? I'm arguing with you the whole time, right? Just write what I'm saying. I'm like, and on one of my papers, I said, I am not gonna write what you say, right? So that was that class. Well, what he did though, in that course, was he dismantled my faith in Jesus and in the New Testament. And I, I couldn't read the New Testament. I could still read the Old Testament, kinda. But every time I'd read the New Testament, I would hear Marcus Borg in the back of my head casting doubt on what I was reading and hearing him. And just, it was a dark time. And so I did what anyone would do. I turned to the church. And I went to church leaders and I went to church. And here's what I got. I essentially got, going to the church in the 90s, I got two answers. Number one answer was this. Matt, you just need faith. I'm a, Listen, I'm not like someone that's attacking Christianity. I want to believe. I want faith. I'm not someone that's trying to like get out of this. I my problem is my faith. If I could manufacture it, I wouldn't be here talking to you. It was so deflating for someone to say that to me because I wasn't antagonistic. Man, I wanted to believe. I had genuine questions. And for someone to say, oh, you just need more faith. Of course I do. Tell me how to get more faith. Don't just tell me you have more faith. That was answer number one. So helpful to me. Answer number two was a formula. You just need to read the Bible more. So I just say, how many chapters a day? Tell me the number and I'll do it, right? You need to pray more. You need to be filled with the spirit. You need to speak in tongues. Whatever, every church has the formula for faith. But guess what? I haven't found a formula yet. If you have a formula for faith, please give it to me because we'll convert the whole world, right? 
I mean, seriously, seven steps out of doubt. Please give them to me because then the whole world's gonna be converted. It doesn't exist. And yet, those were the two answers I got. So what I found was this in my own journey was, and maybe it was the churches that I was going to, was it was like, man, you don't say, faith, you don't say doubt in here. So I just started church hopping. I'd go for every kind of church possible. Right? I'd go to the hyper charismatic church where it is like, you know, we're calling down the Holy Spirit and this is all happening. I went to those churches and I'd be sitting next to a guy who is crying during praise and worship and I'm just sitting there. Yeah, nothing. I got nothing here. Right? And in one of those churches, I, I went up to the pastor afterwards and they were praying for people and getting slain in the spirit and all that stuff. And I said, hey man, like I'm really struggling right now. Can you pray for me? And so this pastor starts to pray for me and it was like, you're gonna go down. And he is literally pressing on my head. And I was like, no, it's either real or I'm standing. You're not gonna push me over, right? So then he's like, nah. I'm like, ah. So <laughs> then he just finally was like, you've got a black box in your heart and until you let God in that, you're not gonna get free from this. And I'm like, thank you, I'm damaged goods. That helped me a lot, right? So I didn't go back there. And then I go to the knowledge church where knowledge is king, right? And I'm sitting next to a girl who is just taking ferocious notes. Fire's coming off her pencil. I don't know if it's a spirit or friction, but fire's coming off it. And I'm like, you ain't got nothing, right? And it was just, you just don't bring doubt into church. It's we believe in here. We're believers. Don't bring your doubt in here. Okay, then. So then I turned to para church organizations. And part of when I recall this in my own mind, I'm kind of apologetic because if you know me, if I latch onto something, I have a very intense side of my personality. And I was very intense in those times, right? So I remember this one thing, I, it was a Wednesday night, parachurch thing. I go there, the guy gives a great great message or it seemed like a great message. And so I thought maybe he could help me. And so I walk up afterwards. I'm like, hey man, great job. You know, I'm wondering if we could meet sometime. I have some questions about faith and I'm kind of struggling right now. And he's like, oh, fire. I said, right now, right here. And remember, I grew up in the church. I now was in my senior year as an engineer. Got a lot of math, a lot of physics, a lot of science behind me as well, right? So he's like, fire. I'm like, right here, okay. I said, can you help me with the Aramaic of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount versus the Greek of Luke when he retells the Sermon on the Mount? I said, can you help me with the events of the Last Supper and reconciling the events of the resurrection? And can you help me with the, the geological strata of fossils? Can you help me coordinate that with creationism? And he just looked at me. There was a pause. I think he prayed for the rapture. Jesus, get me out of here. And he's like, are you sent from Satan to take down my faith, right? And this is what he literally do. He looked over, he had this guy, uh, Bill, which actually Bill and I became friends. He's like, Bill, can you handle this one? <laughs> Come on, Bill's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, fresh meat, let's go, right? So what happened was, I just didn't get answers. And so, in my own head, I went dark. And I didn't slam black tar heroin or anything like that. What I did was I just took all my doubts and I just kind of shoved them into a corner of my mind and tried to ignore them, right? That's what I tried to do. Just try to busy myself with activity so I wouldn't have to think about that stuff anymore. 
That's what I tried to do. And here's why. I was afraid. And if I actually looked at those doubts, that those doubts would prove everything that I believe was wrong. That's what my biggest fear, that my worldview would be changed, that, that what Marcus Borg had been teaching, that there was no God, that there was no Jesus. And so I was so afraid of that eroding everything that I've been raised to believe. I just said, I can't deal with it. I'm just pushing it there. And for two years, I just didn't deal with it. But here's the problem with that. Doubt loves the dark. Doubt loves the dark. It's like mold. It just grows and it slowly poisons you. And here's what happened. Over the course of two years, I just stepped, didn't even really notice it. Just slowly stepped away from faith. I, I, I mean, during the time I didn't notice it, but after two years, man, I had nothing. It just slowly pushed me out of faith. So here's what I wanna say to you. If you're in here right now and you have doubts, you are welcome here. Doubt is not a dirty word. The problem with my doubt was, what, was how I dealt with it. It's not that I had doubts that was bad, it's how I personally processed through them and sometimes the answers that people gave me, right? Formula, faith, instead of like better answers. So here's all I wanna do today as we introduce this series, and we'll talk about a lot of evidence-based stuff as well. But all I wanna do today is for those that have come in here and you have doubts, I wanna set you free, that's normal. That great people in the Bible were plagued by doubts. Did you know that? Let me show you one. His name is Abraham. How important is Abraham when it comes to faith? What's Abraham's nickname in the New Testament? The father of? Faith, right? Really important dude. Look at Genesis 15. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. Interesting. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abraham, believed Yahweh, and he, Yahweh, counted it to him as righteousness. One of the most important verses in the Bible, lifted up in the New Testament as an example. Abraham, 90 years old, been married for I don't know, 70 years, 75 years, a long time. He and his wife had tried many times to have children. They did not have any children. He's 90 and God says this, bro, your descendants are gonna outnumber the stars that you can count. Now, what would you say if you were 90 and God said, you're gonna have a bunch of kids? You'd be like, you're crazy, right? What does Abraham do? He believed and Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. This word righteousness is one of the biggest, most important words in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew word sadaqah. And if you wanna know what God wants in the Old Testament, I'll show you. It's Isaiah chapter five, verse seven. So Isaiah five, seven. says this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, 
God is saying, I chose this nation called Israel. If you know the Bible, I chose them. They're my vineyard. I've protected them. I've watered them. I've planted them. I'm doing work in them. The men of Judah, his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. Hebrew word mizpah. And behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, Hebrew word, sadakah. But behold, an outcry. What did Jesus, what did God want from Israel? Mizpah, justice, and righteousness, sadakah. That's what he wants. These two words appear over and over and over in the Old Testament. Righteousness. Here's what righteousness is. Right attitude and right actions before God that leads to this shalom, this flourishing kind of life. That's righteousness. Mizpah, justice. So righteousness is you're standing before God. Justice is how you treat people. God, people. Sound familiar? Should, because Jesus is asked, hey, what's the Old Testament all about? He says, here's what it's all about. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Sadaqah. And the second's like it. Love your neighbors yourself. Mizpah. God's never changed his plan. It's always been that. So Abraham has Sadaqah. Right attitude, right actions before God that leads to this shalom and flourishing. How did he get this, Sadaqah? One of the things that God's looking for. Is it because he ate all the right food? No, those laws weren't given yet. Is it because he donated a kidney to an orphan in Mexico? Nope. Is it because he carried around a King James Version giant print Bible? Nope. Because he had the right bumper stickers? Nope. Because he was a really nice guy? Nope, because he climbed Mount Shasta and meditated on the top until he was transcendent. Nope. What gave him sadaka? God said something. And it says, Abraham believed. Literally in the Hebrew, it's amen. God said, you're gonna have a bunch of kids. And he says, amen. All right. Yeah, that's faith, right? That's big faith. You're 90. Your wife is just about as old as you. But man, you're gonna have a ton of kids. Amen. Faith. Huge faith, right? Father of faith. But look at verse seven. And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. But, whenever you see a but, man, check that out. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? What do you call that? Doubt. How many minutes later? A minute, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes? He goes from the statement of faith in the Old Testament to, yeah, I'm just not sure. Really? You're 90, you're gonna have kids? Hey, no problem, amen. Hey, this little piece of property, you can have it. Nah, I don't know, I don't know about that, God. Right? Listen, faith is not the absence of doubt, not the absence of questions. Faith is turning around and facing your doubts and asking for help. Isn't that what Abraham does? Hey, hold on. You know, that side, I got it, amen. But over here, this little issue, God, I'm having trouble. Help me. And guess what God does? The rest of this chapter is, let me help you believe this promise as well, that you will possess this land. God helps doubting Abraham. How brilliant is that? There's more doubters. Matthew chapter 11. This is John the Baptist. 
Listen to this. Cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus. Verse two, Matthew 11. Now when John heard in prison, aha, sometimes what are doubt caused by? Prison, right? Remember John the Baptist? Guy that totally followed God, like to a level you and I can't even imagine. Goes out, wears camel skin, eats locusts and honey, preaches repentance, could care less, calls the religious elite of the time. You brood of vipers, right? He's got no problem telling people the way it is. Follows Jesus, follows God to a level you and I cannot imagine, right? And he probably expected, hey, I've given everything to you, God, so you're going to bless me in return. Like, I just want a nice little house in Jerusalem, three camel garage, hot tub for baptizing people, because that's what I do, Jesus. I baptize, I'm the baptizer, right? But what happens? He's thrown in a prison. I found so much doubt if you dig on it, the root of it is they went to prison. Something happened. They were hurt, suffering. Something didn't go the way they thought it was, and there's doubt. So John the Baptist is in prison. So he heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist. I'm surprised Jesus didn't do this to John. To say, really, John? Are you kidding? You've got doubt? How could you have doubt? Your mom gave birth to you when she was like 152 years old. Right? When I showed up in Mary's belly and you're in your mom's belly, you did a backflip. Really? I mean, your mom is like, I'm 152 and this kid's got ADHD. What am I gonna do, right? This is gonna be a hard kid to deal with, right? You baptize me, the heavens open. The father says from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And you've got questions? Hell for you, John. I'm done with you. That's not what he does. If you read this passage, Jesus just goes through Old Testament prophecy. Look, you tell John I'm fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And then he says this, verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Doubting John the Baptist He's the best. That's a different way to deal with doubters, huh? Not your damage good, not you got a black box in your heart. No one better than him. Hmm. How about the disciples? The 12 that Jesus, the Bible tells us, stayed up all night long to choose as his 12 that he would pour his life into. Were they men of tons of faith? Let me just read you some thoughts on that. So Matthew Chapter six, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 825. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of Little faith, 1431. 
Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? 16, verse eight. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? 17, 15. I'll go back. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. This is half of the gospel of Matthew. There are three other gospels to go through. We could be here for an hour just reading little faith, little faith, little faith. It becomes the disciples' nickname. They hear little faith, they're like, yeah, you want me, right? Well, Matt, that was before the resurrection. After the resurrection, they believed. Really, you wanna go there? Okay, Matthew 28, after the resurrection, let's do it. Verse 16, Matthew 28. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, now. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted Jesus, buried, crucified, dead, now alive. He's about ready to ascend up into the heavens. And there's a couple just going, yeah, I just don't know. You know, I got a brother in Vegas who does some stuff like this. Just not sure right? <laughs> I can go on and on and on. I don't want to. The Bible is really honest. The church has this crazy taboo about doubt. The Bible doesn't. It doesn't, right? We fear it. And because we fear it, we shut it off and we quarantine it like I did. And we put it in a corner. And what it does is it slowly poisons us and just pushes us out of faith. And it's like imperceptible at times, but it will eventually push you out of faith because that's what doubt does. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to treat doubt like this, that doubt is often what's used by God to create the antibodies of faith. You know what an antibody is? It's when you get sick, your body makes these molecules, your immune system gets revved up, creates these molecules that fight off that disease, and you actually are healthier afterwards than you were before. Do you know that? It's amazing. Like you need some dirt, in life, okay, I have this study at home from the Journal of the American Medical Association. And they looked at MS, which is an autoimmune disease. And what they found was this, people that have siblings are 90% less likely to get MS. And they started trying to figure out why is that? Here's what they found. When you have a sibling and they come home from school, what do they usually bring with them? That right there, a cough. Perfect, thank you. <laughs> they bring a disease, right? Like every family has had the cough that goes through them for like eight months straight. You're like, oh, it's done. Nope, it starts over, right? And you're like, ah! Well, that makes you healthier. It's called the hygiene hypothesis. That if you're too clean, then your kid's immune system doesn't get spurred and doesn't get healthy and doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And you actually begin to attack yourself, right? That you need a little dirt. That's what you need. So like, moms, you should love this, right? If you have a mother-in-law that complains about your house being dirty, just say, doing it for the kids. 
let me give you a study, here you go. <laughs> like I let my kids lick the elevator buttons. I'm like, well, if it doesn't kill them. <laughs> Strong. Haven't convinced Charity of this. In fact, I've convinced nobody of this, but I'm okay with that. Doubts like that. Like when it's processed correctly, not shoved in a corner, what did all these guys do with their doubts? They asked a good question. Thus the name of this series. God, I just don't know how I'm gonna possess this land. Well, God shows him. John the Baptist, hey, are you the one? Well, let me show you prophecy that I fulfill, right? It's, it's God gives them answers. You ask good questions. And what happens is it builds into you this ability to begin to grow in your faith. And some believers, they do this. They like elevate doubt up, right? Like, there's no answer to these questions. I know, because I took a humanities course at RCC. Like, really? I mean, some wise people have traveled down this road and they have found answers and they're not morons. They're very smart people and they've got answers to this stuff. Don't elevate your doubt to some kind of crazy side, right? No way. You let them get you stronger and stronger and stronger in your faith. So this seven weeks is what I'm gonna try to do. Ask good questions, just bring information. If I have good resources, I'll list them out, books or websites or papers. Like you can read these things and get yourself stronger in the faith. And here's what I know about me. I was better at apologetics 15, 20 years ago than I am now. You know why? Doubt's done its job. I don't have the existential angst that I had 20 years ago, where it was like, if I don't get answers to this, I'm going to die. And it drove me to find them. Now, it's not that I don't have questions, it's that doubt's done its job. And I've got enough answers in my lifetime now that I know the next question, I'll let me an answer for that. And I put it in a category or a file in my head or on my computer, and I just wait for more information because doubt's done its job. And that's what I want to help you with. Like, don't let it destroy you, okay? And, and there's two things I hope to accomplish. Number one is this, to free you from the fear of doubt. That there's this, this fear in Christians, like, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years or 10 years or five years, and I shouldn't have these doubts. I, I teach Sunday school or I lead a home group. What will people think of me, Right? They're gonna think I'm a fake. Well, hold on a second. If you're plagued and paralyzed by doubt, but you're not telling anybody that you're plagued and paralyzed by doubt, you're just coming in, hey, how are things? Oh, God bless you, be at peace, God is so good. What are you? A fake. And with one sentence, you get free of it. Hey, I got some questions. And anyone who is a good Christian will be like, hey, woo, me too. Maybe we should pray or read the Bible or find an answer. That's what a good Christian will do. They won't be like, out. How could you, right? I wanna free you from that stupid fear. Doubt is good if it's dealt with with good questions, right? And then number two, it's this. Yes, I want faith to grow, all that kind of stuff. But here's what I know. Here's what I really want us. I wanna remove obstacles in your path so you learn to love Jesus. That's my goal. So yesterday I picked up this guy, I had to go to Bend and back, and I picked up this guy, and like at the top of, uh, uh, right past where you're on 138, you hit the whatever 5,400 mark, it was 20 degrees, it was cold, right? And so I'm coming down the other side, 
And on 197, I'm driving and I see this guy hitchhiking and he's wearing like khaki pants. And he's got like a little like flannel shirt on and it's 26 degrees there. I'm like, oh my goodness, right? I'd actually cut a guy off to get over and pick him up. So I pick him up, I get him in the car. His name is Dylan and I'm with him for an hour and a half. So that's a great conversation, right? So you learn all about him. I, like, I never start in with like, do you know Jesus? If you don't get out of my car, do you have doubts? All right. I don't begin that way. Ask questions, man. What's going on? Why are you hitchhiking? You got any kids? Like he's got four kids, four boys, you know, ex-wife, you know, just all that addiction in his life. Mom died, all that kind of stuff. And you could go all these facts, but you know what I do? I say, here's what I know. Jesus has loved me so much. I know that. I got an older brother who's dead from addiction. I got a little brother who's on the streets of Grant's Pass because of addiction. I have addiction that runs so strong in both sides of my family. Why not me? Why do I have a beautiful wife? Five incredible kids. Why do I get part, be part of this? Why in, in the chaos of our world do I still have this peace that passes all understanding? Why? Because Jesus loves me. Because Jesus loves me. The proof, the proof that Christianity works as I just look at my life. Are you kidding I'm an anomaly. I should not be what I am. Why am I? Because Jesus loves me. And I want you to know that too. I want to remove obstacles because I had them in my path so that you can learn Jesus loves you because that's what's going to keep you. And so that's why we go to the table every single Sunday because we go to the table and it reminds us what? Jesus loves you. Father, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son. That no greater love has a man than he should lay down his life for his friend. And I pray for each person in here that knows you, that is partaking of this right now. I pray that you would give us a way to view our lives that see you loving us because you have. And so may we eat of your love for us. Let's partake together. We have the cup cup of forgiveness, the cup of friendship, the cup of hope that you're coming back for us, that our hearts need not be troubled. And so I pray for whatever dryness we have, whatever desert we're in, I pray as we drink, I pray that we would taste of the living waters of your forgiveness and your friendship and your hope even today. Let's drink together. Amen. So you know what we do here. We'll sing a song and then there'll be people that will come up here if you need prayer and they'd love to pray for you. 
What was so interesting in the hour and a half talk with Dylan is he's telling me about, you know, his addiction and he's crying and all that kind of stuff. The whole time, you know, the one thing I want to do for him, I just want to pray for him. Let me pray for you, man. We pray for you. And he was like so grateful, you know. He swore, he had, you know I was all over Ben trying to find a house that he could stay in. So grateful. But I just want to pray for him. That people up here, they want to pray for you. That's what they want to do. That's why they're standing up here. You're not imposing on them. It's what they love to do. It's probably what you need. Be prayed for. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Nothing's too big, nothing's too small. Get prayed for. And then we do baptism. Baptism is not salvation. Jesus saves, water doesn't. Baptism is you're saying, you're my Lord now. If you tell me to get baptized, I'm doing that. It's reliving his death, burial, and you resurrect. It's letting you know you are clean. Let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, now you're white as snow. That's baptism. It's putting on the jersey and saying, I belong to Team Jesus and telling the world, principalities and powers, I'm on Team Jesus. And it can be a radical moment in your life that transforms you. If you're doing awesome, thank Jesus. He's loved you. That's why you're doing awesome. Every good and every perfect gift comes from him. Be thankful. Would you stand for this final song?